I'd like to start by asking what we mean by religion or how we use the <clears throat> the adjective <clears throat> religious and perhaps for for some of us we have no time for that sort of language anymore that these words we perhaps feel have been so contaminated by institutions, uh, dogmatic systems of belief, uh, forms of social, political repression, and in many instances, a history stained with blood that we don't particularly feel any resonance, even a lingering affinity uh, with this word. Um, I sympathize with all of that. And um, I struggle likewise with uh, this term, these terms. And although I would consider myself um, a secular Buddhist, Secular to me is not a negation of the idea of, of religiosity or being religious. Uh, I was discussing this with my uh, friend Don Cupid, the Anglican theologian, um, as one might expect, extremely liberal Anglican theologian, um, in Cambridge a few months ago. And I asked him that question. Because uh, he too um, feels that the word religion and the adjective religious still manage to say something that uh, other forms of words can't quite capture. And for him to say something has a religious meaning or a religious concern has to do with those reflections, those ideas, those practices that we undertake that are concerned with coming to terms with our own birth and death. Or perhaps we could say... Uh, reconciling ourselves with the fact of our having been born and our being subject to breakdown and decay and ultimately non-existence. I think in earlier times, at the time of, of Socrates and others, the word philosophy would probably have sufficed. But philosophy too is now a term that's been co-opted by the academy. It's become, at least in popular usage, a rather arcane, abstract, uh, very cerebral sort of discipline. 
So I think to some degrees, unless we can completely revive the ancient meaning of philosophy, I feel that we're stuck with the term religious. So a religious question is one that concerns uh, the primary uh, issue of birth and death. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, uh, this is very explicit. We only have to think of the, the legend of, uh, of Prince Siddhartha, the Buddha-to-be, whose quest began with what are called the four sights. According to the legend, he leaves his uh, sequestered existence behind the palace walls and he goes out into the countryside and he comes across a sick person, an aging person and a corpse and supposedly he'd never seen these things before and the story suggests how his whole um, becoming the Buddha was really triggered by what we would call these existential questions that he saw when he met the sick person and the elderly person and the corpse, he saw in them his own fate as a human being. And that's what uh, propelled him to find uh, some kind of uh, response or resolution or, in Cupid's terms, reconciliation with uh, the questions of our existence, of his existence. And as I mentioned last night, we find that in Zen, in the Chinese traditions, they use this phrase, the great matter of birth and death. And tomorrow, when we start to look into this question, what is this? Then that too is often... Uh, explained as what is this great matter of birth and death. I think one of the problems, though, with this formulation is that it's still very abstract. One of the passages that I find very moving in the Pali text. It occurs only once uh, in the Vinaya, which are the texts concerning the monastic training. There's a passage where the Buddha and his attendant Ananda um, go and visit a community of monks and they go into one of the little huts where the monks lived and there's a monk there who's lying on the ground in a pool of his own 
urine and excrement. Afflicted with dysentery. And the Buddha and Ananda then go get some water. They wash him. They arrange for him to be placed on a bed. They get medicines. They take care of him. And then they ask, but why is it that none of the other monks are caring for you? And the sick monk says, well, they say they won't care for me because I'm not participating in the community life anymore. I mean, that sounds a little bit harsh. But anyway, that's what the text says. And so the Buddha then goes to the other monks of the community and he puts the same question to them. Why are you not caring for this guy? And they give the answer that they'd already heard that, well, he's not doing anything for us. He's not pulling his weight. And then the Buddha says, look, you don't have a father or a mother to care for you. If you do not care for each other, no one else will. Those of you who would attend to me should tend to the sick. Now what is striking about this passage is that we see the Buddha quite literally getting his hands dirty. He's focusing here on a specific occasion of a person who is suffering from illness and is not being cared for. We can put aside the the rationale. But that's, that's the core issue. And then in conclusion, he says that those who would tend to me should tend to the sick. Not the sick in some universal, general, abstract sense, but, in this case, the sick monk. Now, there are, of course, and I'm sure some of you have would immediately pick this up, there are striking resonances here with the passage in the Gospels. Uh, it's Matthew 25 where Jesus um, is talking to his disciples and saying that each time that you took care of a person who was naked, didn't have clothing, was hungry, was in prison, you took care of me. Now this Buddhist passage is probably about 400 years before that. But exactly the same point is being made. So when we talk about the great matter of birth and death, or birth, sickness, aging, death, we're actually talking about specific, uh, concrete instances of people who are sick, people who are old, people who are dying. And the Buddha is saying, by tending and caring for them, you are tending and caring for me. Now, by me here, I don't think he means 
me, Siddhartha Gautama of the Shatkin clan, but rather what Siddhartha Gautama stands for, awakening, enlightenment, call it what you will. In other words, he recognizes that um, the encounter with dukkha, with suffering, is um, one that engages us with a particular, specific, concrete situation. When he presents the Four Noble Truths, and the first noble truth is the noble truth of dukkha, usually translated as suffering. And again, it, it starts by birth, sickness, aging, death, our dukkha. That those who are sick, those who are growing very old and infirm, those who are dying, they are, in a way, witness to dukkha, in a way that is very real. The Buddha's injunction regarding the first truth is uh, dukkha is to be fully known, embraced. So I think what's going on here is that the person who is actually dying or seriously ill, is at that moment fully knowing dukkha. It's not abstract for that person. It's concrete. And our willingness and ability to embrace that suffering of the other is in fact embracing the very heart of enlightenment or awakening Buddha itself and again although I said it sounded a little bit unrealistic that the monks would say well he doesn't do anything for us therefore we don't do anything for him but think for a while about how you might relate to a person who's chronically ill or very very old or dying. To what extent can you see that same um, hesitation or reluctance uh, or aversion to actually getting your hands dirty, of getting involved or engaged? To what extent do you not really want to, to deal with that? How easily do you find an excuse to do something else? In my own case, at the moment, in fact for the last years, um, I've, had to, uh, be care, I've had to care for my mother. She's in a home. She's 97, soon to be 98. She's in reasonably good health, at least from a purely medical point of view, but she suffers. She can't see very well, she can't walk, her short-term memory is shot, 
All of her friends, her relatives, apart from her two sons, are dead. She's terribly alone. And I find myself struggling sometimes to to give her the amount of attention that I would like to. And I think we could multiply that example in many, many ways. I think also today in our culture um, we have um, many, many um, avenues that open up the great matter of birth and death for us in sometimes places which would in no way be considered to be religious. And I'm thinking particularly of of the novel, um, film, theatre, opera. None of these things existed at the Buddha's time. In fact, none of them really developed until fairly recently in human history. But what I find very powerful about these um, forms of literature and art is that they probe deeply into the specificity of pain. I've just finished reading a novel by Philip Roth called Nemesis. It was published last year. And that's just the first example off the top of my head. It's about the polio epidemic that took place in Newark, New Jersey in 1944. It's a a profound meditation on sickness. I would say that it brings home the reality of sickness in terms of the the character's relation to it in others and towards the end the character's own experience of that very sickness. And the power of literature is to be able to... uh, contemplate uh, the specificity of pain, the specificity of suffering, in a somewhat unflinching way. And so it's in, with these sorts of examples, I feel, that we need to consider this otherwise rather abstract idea of the great matter of birth and death. Now, if we think of the Buddha's own uh, path as one that started with specific encounters with these things, and that was what propelled him on his way, then I think we also need to consider that what we call enlightenment or awakening is in fact only intelligible as a response or a resolution 
or a reconciliation which is arrived at as a prolonged contemplation of the human condition in all of its beauty, in all of its tragedy. That enlightenment is not some kind of um, transcendent state in which we tap into some ultimate reality, some absolute truth, something like God. But rather it is, um, in a way, the culmination of our quest to come to terms with birth, sickness, aging, death. In other words, the conflicts and the contradictions and the, uh, the tragic dimension of our own and others' lives. Now, I also mentioned yesterday how, in many ways, what is uh, striking in Zen Buddhism, at least if we look in its early history, is that it seeks to return to the beginning of the Buddha's quest. It, start, it seeks to come back to the questions uh, that prompted the Buddha, rather than to try to understand the doctrines of Buddhism. Over the centuries, Buddhism has become a lot of things. It's evolved um, a fairly complex metaphysics, a cosmology, um, epistemology, uh, theories of salvation, um, a detailed, perhaps overly detailed, um, reflection on the structure of the path to enlightenment. And like all systems of thought and practice that become um, uh, popular and powerful, its proponents can very easily become attached to the idea that these are, in fact, the answers. And all we have to do is understand them, and our life will somehow be resolved. The early monks who started the Chan or Zen movement, however, felt that that system of doctrine those institutions, had actually lost touch with something very vital. They got lost in speculation, in abstraction, in dogma, in belief. And so the Zen monks said, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the primacy of the questions that provoked the Buddha's own awakening. And inevitably, this means coming back to the question of our very uh, most raw sense of being alive, being here, 
as we sit in this room. And again, this is not deliberate. But we experience pain. We sit on this cushion, we walk around the inside of the room. And I suspect that for many of us, this is not um, an experience of unadulterated joy. It's hard work. Um, It's a confrontation with ourselves in a very um, almost brutal way sometimes. There's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to uh, flee. All of our habitual um, escape routes are cut off. We can't go and check our email for the 25th time in the morning. Or switch on the radio. Or phone up a friend. Or rearrange the books on our bookshelf. Or whatever we do to somehow um, distract ourselves. We find ourselves exposed um, in a confined space to the raw experience of being who we are. Sometimes that's a wonderful liberating, joyous experience. And hopefully it will continue and become more so. But at the same time, it demands of us a degree of honesty to actually look ourselves in the face, to be witness to what is bubbling up in our mind, uh, to feel the emotions, the worries, the anguish, the uncertainty of our bodies, of our thoughts. And that is where this path begins and, I feel, is where this path will end. There's nowhere else to go. This is it. Now, there's a famous uh, self-definition of Zen Buddhism. I may not be quoting it verbatim, but it's something like, um, the Zen is a direct pointing to the heart of man, nowadays we'd say the person, without any dependence on words or scriptures. And this is, in a way, where the whole idea of the Zen traditional transmission is based. The Zen is sometimes said to be a, a direct transmission from mind to mind. But I think the important point, however we interpret or use that phrase, is to recognize that 
This is a practice in which everything we know about Buddhism or Christianity or philosophy or whatever it is, that all has to be put to one side. And instead, we need somehow to peer into the heart of our own experience. Without the superstructure, without the crutches, without the consolations of belief and doctrine and theory. I don't think this is an an exclusive property of Zen by any means. But it's certainly something that the Zen tradition highlights and flags. But there's a problem here. Because where do we get that little bit of information? That phrase I just cited. We get it from a scripture. It's words. And yet we're talking of something that's supposed to be not dependent on words or scripture. And here we go, citing a scripture to make that point. Isn't that a contradiction already? We justify this non-verbal, non-scriptural approach by quoting a text. I think this points to a couple of things. One is that, in reality, it's not really possible to step outside language, to step outside the way in which a tradition articulates itself or gives voice to itself. We're always enmeshed in that, I feel, to some degree. But there is a spectrum in which, at one end, we have the dogmatic um, believer who just cites texts and feels that's enough. And on the other hand, we have the person who works within the framework of those ideas but treats them rather more lightly as pointers, as guidelines, as things that in a way point beyond themselves to something else. And it's in that sense, I feel, that we need to understand that passage. In Zen they talk about not mistaking the finger for the moon to which it points. And the moon is our own existence. And the finger are these various texts, or, of course, these very words I'm using now, in fact. But I think the other paradox in Zen, and I feel this is probably true of any kind of tradition which has a kind of mystical aspiration, is that in spite of itself, it generates ever-growing bodies of writing. And it's rather strange, but probably true, that one of the Buddhist traditions which has the largest uh, canon of texts is Zen. Hundreds and hundreds of texts. And so, in spite of itself, 
starting out as a movement that sheds its concern with doctrine and so on, coming back to direct experience, it ends up today as a very wordy, uh, a very uh, doctrine-heavy and very hierarchical institution. It becomes another church, essentially, with all of the problems that churches tend to have. Corruption, um, alliances with very dubious um, forms of power and authority and privilege. So I think we're at a situation where Zen itself has to undergo a Zenification. It too now has become, in many respects, uh, the problem. Institutional Zen, doctrinal Zen, is perhaps something we need to discard. And we've got to a point now where you often hear people say, when discussing some spiritual or philosophical matter, they'll say, but in Zen they say, or Zen says, as though Zen has now become some sort of body of views and doctrines that can be quoted, as I've been doing. So if we apply a Chan Zen approach to the institutions and the doctrines of Chan and Zen, all of that stuff has to be put aside too. That's no more um, free from the kind of problems that the early Zen monks faced and tried to solve than anything else. And of course we have the additional dilemma um, is that Zen Buddhism is, um, is saturated with uh, East Asian culture, whether it be Japanese or Chinese or Korean. It's presented to us in a form that is highly recognizable as belonging to the cultures of the Far East. So it's, it's culturally um, confusing. What, in fact, is it in Zen that actually is more Chinese or Taoist or Japanese than, in fact, to do with uh, the teaching of Zen Buddhism? It's very muddled up. The aesthetics, uh, the structures of authority, the poetry, all of this is as much Japanese as it is Buddhist. And that's very difficult to disentangle. And yet again, another reason I would suggest why it all needs to be put aside. I'm not saying rejected, but put to one side. Put to one side in the same way that the rest of Buddhism 
perhaps too, we need to put to one side when we are engaged in this kind of practice. We have to forget all that stuff. Respectfully, but nonetheless, to put it aside. And to come back uh, to the primacy of the question that our own life That's the one that's going on right now. The one that is hearing these words, that listens to the rooks, that is in contact with the cushion on which you are sitting. That's where we come back to. And that's got nothing to do with Buddhism. In fact, all the world's religions and philosophies are attempts to respond or to understand what it is that is sitting on this cushion or chair or walking around this room or eating lunch or looking at the blossoms on the tree. That's what we're concerned with. And I feel also that as we pursue this kind of quest, we're seeking a reconciliation, a coming to terms with, a response, an understanding that is peculiarly and specifically our own. We're not doing this practice in order to conform to some traditional understanding, to conform to what Hui Neng might have said, or Dogen, or Hakuin, or whoever. We're trying to find a response to this condition that is very specifically our own. One of the uh, Tang dynasty Chan masters called Yunmen was once asked, what is the highest teaching of the Buddhas and the patriarchs? And his answer was, an appropriate statement. An appropriate statement. In other words, not some particular doctrine, but a statement or a teaching or a response that is appropriate to a specific, concrete situation in life here and now. And if you look at the, if you look at the Zen koans, and there are many collections of them, like the Blue Cliff Record or the Gateless Gate, these were compiled some centuries after the episodes they tell of took place. But what is striking about them is that the teacher, in every case, is seeking to provoke in the student a response to the great question of birth and death that is not just a repetition of what somebody else said before. 
but actually is a heartfelt and authentic response that comes from, from yourself. It's your own response. Authenticity is a word that's used quite a lot in Western philosophy. But um, it has the sense, at least in German, of that which is one's own. That which is one's own. And I think Zen, at its best, is a, a way of practice, a way of thinking, a way of being that allows us to articulate to say, to express, not just in words, but also in how we, we embody our understanding in the world, how we present ourselves in the world, how we express ourselves through art, through literature, through politics, through social work in the world. That's the response to the koan of life. To tap into a kind of, of spontaneity, perhaps. To um, articulate something that is, at the same time, a risk. We don't have some, the security of it being backed up by some tradition some belief system. It's our heartfelt risk of responding to the concrete situation at hand. And this is also true um, in the early Buddhist tradition as well. I think in some respects what the Zen tradition does is it helps recover some of what's been forgotten in the teachings of the Buddha. Because we find the same idea, that when one enters the stream, as we would say in, 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 in Theravada Buddhism or early Buddhism, which means to have, uh, to, to, uh, have, have had that first uh, genuine moment of insight then one of the characteristics of such a, uh, a person is that they become independent of others in the Buddha's teaching independent of others in other words they become their own authority now of course organized religion isn't very keen on that as a rule authority resides in those who are authorized by the institution. It's rather scary and rather potentially disruptive if ordinary people, particularly those who aren't career Buddhists or monks, to declare their own authority, to live by their own authority... Yet that clearly is what the Buddha was talking about. And of course, it's not, these little passages are tucked away in the canon. They're not widely broadcast. 
but there seems to be ample evidence when you read through the early writings that autonomy is very central to the practice of the path itself. Now if we, or at least I, um, summarize uh, some of these ideas, I think it points towards um, uh, a secularization of the Dharma. In other words, the Dharma no longer being the, the property almost of certain Buddhist schools or organizations, or at the very least, the people in power in those schools and organizations, but rather um, become something that each individual person, each small community um, embodies in their own life and their practices. We don't have to look any further. We'll probably come back to these ideas. But the word secular is often contrasted, in fact seen to be the opposite of religious Secular literally means of this world. It comes from the Latin word seculum, which means this age or this time, this place, rather than something that is embodied in some kind of tradition that has a long history going back to the Buddha or to Christ, or to Muhammad. And I feel that each generation, at least particularly our generation, is one in which we have the possibility of bringing the Dharma into the seculum, into our own lives, rather than continuing to, in some respect, feel that it stands apart from that in some spiritual or religious domain. And as I said at the beginning, I think the word religious is still legitimate. And although it might jar... For some of us, I see no problem with the idea of a secular religion, secular religiosity. In other words, a coming to terms with our birth and death in the context of our time and place now, in this world rather than feeling that religion is somehow to be protected against the, as they say in the press, the tide of godless secularism, <laughs> but rather needs, in a sense, to give itself away, to give itself up, and um, 
embrace and lose itself in the seculum. One of the greatest exemplars of this kind of approach is or was the the German theologian uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm only flagging that. I'm not. I might say more about him later in the week. But he introduced this idea of secular religion or secular Christianity. In his letters from prison, he was incarcerated by the Nazis and eventually executed some days before the end of the war for being part of the plot to kill Hitler. And for me, Bonhoeffer stands as an extraordinary example of an engaged, uh, secular, but deeply religious person. And on that point, I think we need to close. Thank you. Um, 